This Bee Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate, so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K through 12th grade curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable real-time insights. Strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. If you want to bring IXL to your school, you can learn more at IXL.com backslash B-E. That's IXL.com backslash B-E. We're proud to be sponsored by MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Schools can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, activity periods, RTI, therapy, and teacher appointments, and much more. With its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com backslash BE to learn more and receive $500 off the first year. That's myflexlearning.com backslash BE. This is Dr. Karen, and this is the Are They 18 Yet podcast, where I help parents raise independent, self-sufficient kids without sacrificing their own identity and sense of purpose. I'm here to share practical day-to-day solutions for raising kind, successful, well-adjusted human beings, and actionable advice for supporting systemic changes so we can make this world a more inclusive, accepting place now and for future generations. Hey there, it's Dr. Karen, and welcome to episode 63 of the Are They 18 Yet podcast. In this episode, I wanted to share a special Q&A session that I did with the Language Therapy Advance members. The reason I'm sharing this is because these questions come up a lot just informally, whether it be on social media, whether it be readers of my mailing list. And so I wanted to dive into the topic of dyslexia and working memory. And a lot of times, depending on who's asking the question, you know, obviously, if it's an SLP who's asking versus a parent who's asking versus a teacher, the question is a little bit different. But Really, the question comes down to if you have kids who struggle with things like processing and attending and following directions, learning to read, how do we help them? And so the the question that was asked specifically was, what is the SLP's role in treating dyslexia? And then another question that came up in this specific Q&A is, should SLPs be writing goals for working memory? So obviously, this is going to be of interest to you if you are a speech pathologist, if you are supporting kids in the school system. Obviously, you probably have a lot of students who are struggling to read, or maybe they are having a hard time following along in their classroom, and they're having some kind of language processing issue, and you're just trying to figure out, how do I support these kids? 
And if you are a teacher or a parent, it's relevant to you as well, because you're also probably, you know, if you're, you have a child who is, is working on any of those things, there's this element of what do I do to help? And what can be kind of confusing for both the therapist and the other people who might be referring to the therapist is, number one, if my child presents with these symptoms, where do I go for help? And then let's say that they are seeing a therapist. It can be difficult to know what skills you should be working on, why your therapist is working on those specific skills, and what assessments they're doing. All of that can be really confusing. So I think it can be really helpful, regardless of what position you are in and supporting the child, just to understand how this process works. Dyslexia is a really interesting one because when it comes to services in the school systems, that can be really confusing because there are differences with regards to what a therapist can diagnose in a school system versus what they can actually diagnose in a private practice or a medical setting. And a lot of times the credentials and the skills of the actual therapist from one setting to another might be very similar, but because of the setting they're in, they can't put a specific label on the child, you know, even if they do the same or a very similar evaluation. And so I mentioned this, I mentioned dyslexia specifically because it's different when it comes to a school setting versus a medical setting. And I think that can be really important to understand if you are a teacher or a parent, as well as an SLP. So we start off this Q&A session by talking about the speech pathologist's role in treating dyslexia and how that is different across settings. So if you have a child who gets services or is struggling with reading, this can be relevant to you. And then obviously, if you are some kind of a practitioner or an educator who wants to help kids, that can be relevant as well. And then the topic of working memory is really interesting because this is something that can impact how well a child is attending. And I use that word loosely because there are a lot of behaviors that we might see a child doing that we might perceive to be as attention difficulties. And it's always this this act of, of really trying to play detective and, and just really figure out what's going on there. And so with working memory, what we're talking about is someone's ability to process incoming information and then use it right away. And there are a lot of different thoughts on what we can actually address in therapy and what we can actually improve and then also what's functional and, and what what is a good use of time when it comes to, to therapy. And so I wanted to dive into that discussion as well because when we're talking about dyslexia specifically, a lot of times working memory does come up. It also comes up for kids who might have ADHD, for example, because there's a question of, okay, should I write a goal on the student's IEP about working memory to improve their ability to follow directions? And there, that's kind of a, a controversial topic. Um, the other diagnosis that comes up when we're talking about auditory memory and working memory is auditory processing disorder. I've had a lot of parents and teachers and speech pathologists ask me about that specific diagnosis. So that's something that's relevant to consider when we are talking about dyslexia as well as working memory. So 
in this episode, I answer those two questions of should what is uh, what is an SLP's role in treating dyslexia? How should they handle that? And then should they be writing goals for working memory on a language IEP? So if you are an SLP who is working with kids who fit that profile, or if you're a teacher who's supporting kids, or if you are a parent who has a child who just wants to make sense of all of this, it will be super helpful. Now, as I mentioned before, this Q&A session is taken directly from the members Facebook group for Language Therapy Advanced Foundations. That is my online course for SLPs, where I show them a complete framework for language therapy that helps them to address processing issues that impact vocabulary, reading, spelling, and all of those language skills that we need in order to be successful in school and then eventually life after school. Language is such a huge area. It can be really difficult to know where to start. It was one of those areas where when I first started practicing, I felt like I was shooting from the hip. I felt like I was guessing and I was spending a ton of time in therapy trying to figure out what to do next. And it was frustrating because despite of you know all this time I was spending planning and prepping outside of sessions, I really wasn't seeing my students make progress. And so that's why I went back and got my doctorate and made language my area of expertise. And as I was doing my research, I put together this framework that I outline in the program. And now I share it with other SLPs because it's essentially the program that I wish I would have had back when I started practicing. And it really addresses a lot of these questions that I get into in this Q&A. As I said in the members group, how that works is that there is a specific course where I show therapists specific strategies that they can do in therapy. And then I do Q&As like this one that go into some specific questions that have come up. So if you are an SLP and you have been feeling lost when it comes to language therapy, or if you just want a better system so that you know exactly how you should be spending your therapy time so that you can help your students make consistent progress so that they can actually start to look forward to school and start to make some of those breakthroughs where you know maybe they start to feel confident and they feel like they can actually be successful and you can feel successful as a therapist, then definitely check out the Language Therapy Advanced Foundations enrollment page to learn more about what's included in the program. To do that, you can go to drkarenspeech.com backslash language therapy. Again, that's drkarenspeech.com backslash language therapy. Just a heads up as we get into this Q&A, um, these are pretty informal, so my audio is going to sound a little bit different. You can kind of hear me um, shuffling things around on my desk just because usually I've got a bunch of questions from members in front of me, and so I'm making sure that I get to them all. So my audio is going to be a little bit different than the normal podcast audio, um, but again, I think that you will find the information very valuable. So with all that said... Here is the Q&A on dyslexia and working memory. So you may have noticed that when you log into the training modules, there's the, the framework, and that's the starting point. And a lot of people, when they come in here, sometimes they want something that's a little bit more scripted, more of a curriculum, do this exact thing step by step in your sessions. 
And as you're probably already starting to realize, that's really hard to do when it comes to language therapy and just therapy in general when it comes to being an SLP because there are so many individual cases. And if I were to create a step-by-step guide for every single case that there was out there, that would be hundreds and hundreds of hours of videos. So what I've done is I have made the framework and the starting point, and that's where you can get that jumping off point where you can create your own customizations because really that is the sweet spot because we can't just totally start from scratch with no no framework because that's really inefficient. But at the same time, we've got to make it customized to your students' individual needs because that's the whole point of therapy is that they're in there working with you so that they can get something that's above and beyond the standard curriculum. And so if it were a cookie cutter thing, it wouldn't fit their needs and it wouldn't actually be helpful to them. So there was a question, and this is something that comes up a ton. So I'm glad that someone brought it up in here. And I have talked about it before, but I think it's really important to reiterate it because there's always new research coming out and there is always just, you know, there's so many different opinions out there. So the question is, is what is the SLP's role in treating dyslexia? And how do I know what I should be doing? What am I qualified to do, especially when I'm in a school, private practice? What does the teacher do? What does a special ed teacher do? What about psychologists and all these other specialists? So obviously, a very complex question, but I wanted to point out a couple different things that you want to consider when it comes to dyslexia. So number one, obviously a great place to start. And there was a, uh, someone posted this link in the question thread, but basically there is a position statement. Asha has a position statement about the speech pathologist's role in dyslexia and reading and spelling disabilities. So that's a good place to start. But what we want to realize is that, number one, there are a lot of different theories about what dyslexia is or isn't. There are some people that think they say dyslexia is really dystichia. That just means that they didn't get proper interventions and it doesn't really exist. And then there are other people on the end of the spectrum that say, on the other end, that say there is an actual neurological difference in the way that they process Regardless of where you fall on that spectrum, um, I think saying that it doesn't exist is a bit um, is a bit extreme. But I think that there are many times when it is diagnosed that maybe there wasn't appropriate interventions in place. So maybe there are times that it might be erroneously diagnosed. But we know that for whatever reason, some people have a hard time making those connections. So that means that you might see issues with phonological awareness morphological awareness, and those things are going to cause issues decoding. And that means that a lot of those typical teaching strategies, which require a lot of implicit learning to take place, and I'm not saying that teachers aren't doing a good job, but there's only so much that they can do. So a lot of times the interventions that are out there and um, the, the curricular materials, they present a lot of information and a lot of different patterns, a lot of different orthographic patterns that require students to figure a lot of those things out on their own. So if you're someone who can implicitly just pick up on some of those different patterns and pair them up with different 
phonological patterns and just kind of figure it out on your own, then you're going to respond fine to the typical general education curriculum. But, and for those types of things, when we do these sight word drills where we're doing flashcards and things like that, and we're not explicitly pulling, you know, drawing connections between the print symbols and the different linguistic patterns in the word, whether it be drawing connections between the letters and the sounds or drawing connections between the morphemes and what they mean or how they're pronounced, all of those things. And honestly, all students benefit from that. But some people are able to put it together on their own without being explicitly taught better than others. So that's why a lot of them are doing just fine when they don't when they're doing some of that rote drill type of things that are often recommended in curriculums. But if you have a student who struggles making those connections, typically a lot of those students who have a dyslexia diagnosis, they're going to struggle with those, uh, with understanding those explicit or those patterns. So they might have a hard time remembering those different spelling patterns. So we might need to directly explain this pattern or these letters that go together make this sound or point out those specific prefixes and suffixes in words. All of those different patterns and how they're pronounced and what they mean, we're going to have to be more direct with them and give them more direct teaching. A lot of times above and beyond what teachers have the capacity to do in the general education curriculum. So all of those things that I just mentioned are very typical of students who have a dyslexia diagnosis and are also very language-based. So because of that, they are absolutely within your scope of practice. And actually, you are an ideal person, sometimes better than some of the other people who might be working on it, uh, because you have that background in language. Now, that's not to say that teachers don't do a good job. There are a lot of teachers who do have a good understanding with that. But then there are some that don't, depending on their level of training. So, yes, you're absolutely qualified to do that. Um, but not everybody understands what you do as an SLP. So with that in mind, we do have, it is kind of our responsibility to educate and do it in a way that's diplomatic so that people are open to it and make people aware of what we do, that we're more than just the person who helps kids who stutter and helps kids who can't say are. So with that all in mind, yes, you're qualified, but then there are some legal things that you have to consider and I'm referring to mostly how this works in the U.S. school systems. It might apply to other countries as well. But when you are working in a school system, the school districts, because they're not a medical setting, yes, there is a whole adverse effect, um, but they also can't be the ones to diagnose, to give you a medical diagnosis. And dyslexia falls under the, the category of medical terminology. So that means that school districts often cannot actually give a student a dyslexia diagnosis. What they will typically do is use the school's eligibility categories. 
So that typically might be specific learning disability in the area of reading. Sometimes you might see other diagnoses if there are comorbid things going on, like maybe they might have an other health impairment or something like that. Um, so they might not even have an SLD eligibility classification, but it's, it's a little bit more broad, more general. And a lot of times the battery of assessments that a school psychologist, a special ed teacher, a speech pathologist might give might be overlapping, might be the same battery and same quality of assessment that they might get in a medical setting. So an outpatient clinic that's a dyslexia, you know, just some kind of dyslexia specialist center or something like that, some kind of an outpatient clinic um, or or a medical setting. So any of those things, if they're in an, a medical setting, they can give that diagnosis. So the testing could be exactly the same, but they just are able to use that terminology because they are not the school setting. So it's kind of a semantic argument if you're looking at it that way. And the thing is, is that and this is not to discount anything that private practitioners do, but keep in mind that if you are in the school with the student, a lot of times you have more context and you know the student better than that person in the outpatient setting. And so that's a double-edged sword. Sometimes it means that you might have biases. Um, sometimes it might mean that you actually have better insight. Same thing with the outpatient clinic. Sometimes they're able to do more because they have more resources and more time than the school. And they are coming in as a third party, less biased perspective. They're not maybe as emotionally involved. So sometimes that can be a good thing. But then on the other hand, they are getting a smaller picture of that student. So sometimes they can be limited. So there's pros and cons of both. Ideally, what you want to do is be a team, be a partnership, be working together um, but that's really the difference there. And that's why there's a little bit of confusion there because, and, and I think this is really important to educate the staff because I've worked with teachers who don't understand this. They're like, well, this, this person is a doctor because they work in a medical setting. And I'm like, no, they're not a, a doctor. They have a clinical doctorate in, you know, whatever, maybe they're a, a PsyD, maybe they're sometimes even audiologist when they, um, and this is a separate diagnosis, but similar issue when they might get a central auditory processing diagnosis from an audiologist because the, the terminology doctor is in front of it. They are automatically, sometimes parents automatically think this is better than what they got at the school, even if it might be very comparable. Um, or just the fact that it's in a medical setting, the parent went outside, maybe paid money or um, <laughs> had to pay something even if they build it to their insurance, sometimes just the perception of this is better because this came from the school, which I didn't pay for, even if maybe they did with their taxpayer dollars, dollars um, than this other setting. So there's a different perception there. It's really important to educate people on the difference in that because sometimes it, it just causes a little confusion and they might, and people might think, you know, oh, this is this is more accurate over here because it came from, this person versus this person over here. And that's not always the case. Um, but, and sometimes you can only do so much about people's perceptions, but it's just something to be aware of for you to know that you're qualified to do that. Um, even if you can't legally be the one to put that diagnosis there, you're certainly qualified to assist with, um, with those areas.
Um, so, um, what I re typically recommend is that when you're in the school systems working on this, now, obviously, if you're in a private practice, you have, you might have a little more leeway. You might be able to cover more ground if you have a one-on-one -on -one session for an hour with a student. Obviously, you might be able to do more in that time frame. In the school system, a lot of times it might not be that you're not qualified to deliver a certain intervention, but it might be that you just don't have the bandwidth to do it. So you have to prioritize. And the goal is that you want you want to have an awareness of what that student needs. And as a person who is an expert in that area, you're make you want to make sure it's being done somewhere whether you are consulting with someone and then they're delivering it or you're the one delivering it directly. So how it could look, um, how it often looked for me was that I would dive into things like syntax and morphology and, and even some of the semantic things because nobody else was really doing that. The special ed teacher actually did quite a bit of vocabulary intervention as well. So she was hitting on the semantics as well, but I was doing it in a more meta, looking into the syntax of definitions and things like that. And she was doing it a little more broader, big picture, high level comprehension, you know, using context clues, even though I could pull some of that in some of the time. So she was hitting it from a different angle. And then the special ed teacher was doing more of the phonological awareness and specific spelling patterns even though I was qualified to do any of those things. And if I were in private practice, I might want to be doing all of those things. So you really want to figure out how it's going to work for your individual team and know that you are, you can have those conversations. And obviously, if you see somebody doing something and you know that it's not exactly in line, you have to be careful about how you have those conversations because nobody wants you to just barge into their classroom and start you know, schooling them on things that won't probably come over, come across very well. But if you have that regular dialogue with them, a lot of times people will come around, especially when they see you as a person who can help. I, I did have a lot of teachers where it was like, you know, initially they have their way of doing things and based on, you know, whatever their experiences were before me, but then they might come to me and be like, you know what, I'm really stuck with so-and-so on this skill, you know, like what, what else can we do here? And there would be a brainstorm session. And then that's where I could kind of put my two cents in and they would start coming around to those things. So, uh, so when it comes to dyslexia, again, you want to just be aware of all of those things, the legal terminology, the, um, you know, all the politics there and, and what's really great is that if you do have a student who does have an outside practitioner, that's another person that you can work with that can do some of those things that maybe you aren't doing. A lot of times if you have that open dialogue, it's like, hey, um, the student is really struggling with this, this and this. I can only get to these things, but I know that they need these things. Maybe you could be doing those things and, you know, pull in some of what I'm doing and we can Again, like I say, divide and conquer. And um, sometimes you, when you can be on the same team, that's always ideal. All right. So that's the whole dyslexia discussion. Let me peek here and see what some of the other questions are. Where I'm going to go next is um, there were two 
threads that, that asked about working memory and phonological memory. So a lot of these assessments that are often done by reading specialists or, um, you know, psychologists, experts in the area of dyslexia or people who have been trained in some of those programs like Wilson who have a different testing batteries for things like phonological memory, working memory, um, digit span. Um, and this kind of falls under the, the window of the auditory processing diagnosis as well. So there are, gosh, again, hot topic, especially with the auditory memory. And I think that these two things overlap as well, because we do see a lot of kids who have a dyslexia diagnosis who do have that poor working memory. And then we also see kids who have an auditory processing diagnosis or both. Sometimes they might have both diagnoses or you might be, the parent might be considering one or the other. Uh, that also have the issues with working memory. So the thing about that is, is that um, there have been some studies that have looked at the same profile and the practitioner and um, the diagnosis that the student was given was dependent on the practitioner. So if they went to a psychologist, maybe they got an attention deficit diagnosis. And if they went to a speech pathologist, it was speech and language impaired. And if they went to um, an audiologist, it was central auditory processing disorder. And so I'm not saying that whether or not certain diagnoses exist, um, but we have seen a pattern of kids who have a diagnosis of dyslexia, central auditory processing. We know that they have issues with decoding and working memory, and that high-level comprehension. And we know that improving things like vocabulary, um, and then by, and then, let me say that again. We know that improving our, the vocabulary skills can impact the ability to decode and comprehend, specifically when we are working on things like um, diving into syntax and sentence structure, so understanding how sentences go together, and then also those things that impact decoding like phonological awareness and morphological awareness. Um, and we know that intervening in those areas results in a functional improvement and it can improve that high level processing. Because we know that those things work and we know that those things have an impact on those other functional skills, that's why I really dive into those things in this program. You only have a... a finite amount of time with your students, you need to be focusing your therapy time and your the way that you write your goals on the things that we know work. Now, that being said, there is some controversy as to whether or not, number one, something like an auditory processing diagnosis even exists. Some people think it doesn't. Um, and that it's just language processing issues. And then there's also the issue of whether working on those particular skills actually results in a functional improvement. As of now, there's not a lot of evidence that shows that working on rote memory, so for some of those things like um, like digit span, just rote recall of words, all of those things, there's not a lot of evidence that you can actually improve that. But you can improve overall processing if we understand the content. So a lot of times what actually impacts your ability to retain things 
is your ability to um, understand those words. If you just tell somebody random words or numbers that don't have any meaning for how they fit together, it's going to be harder to remember than if you have an entire sentence with a message behind it. So if the if those things that you're saying to something to someone have meaning that they are going to have an, an easier time processing and that's really what we want when we want to improve those working memory skills and we can teach compensatory strategies for other things where it's like you know you tell someone a phone number and they don't remember it well they can write it down you can teach compensatory strategies um, and other cognitive strategies to improve some of those other functional working memory tasks. So with that all being said, the question is, should I write a goal on working memory? And uh, and some of those other like phonological memory and things like that. Um, I would err towards not if it's something that's not functional. Um, so, so let me just give you a couple examples here. So saying something, you know, saying like, will improve digit span, you know, from like three numbers to five numbers. So like you say two, five, nine, and they can remember that. And then the you want them to be able to remember five digits. Well, it's not that functional, but if you were to have some goals for maybe following directions with multiple critical elements or something like that, a lot of times those are something that falls under the window of auditory memory, working memory. If you're working on those goals, what I recommend you do with them is make sure that you embed those functional vocabulary skills within them. So instead of just randomly having your students wrote, repeat things that they hear auditorily, embed something functional in it. So um, for so you might have directions with um, key vocabulary concepts embedded in them. So they're getting some exposure to those vocabulary words. My philosophy is, again, we only have so much treatment time. So you want to make what you do count. So to me, it's kind of a gamble where it's like, if you're if you're choosing to focus your therapy on these things over here that might work, but we don't have a lot of of evidence to show that they do work, um, such as those rote skills, then you're potentially taking away time that you could be spending on these other things that you know do work that you don't even have enough time to work on. <laughs> like you don't even have enough time to work on these things that that actually do have a lot of evidence to support them. So it's a little bit of a gamble to focus over here on these other things that maybe somebody is telling you need, you need to work on or whatever. So if you're targeting them in a way that also is working on these things that we know do work, it's kind of like, well, we're not fully sure where we stand here because there are some anecdotal reports that, you know, um, some people say that they've seen these things work in with case study evidence. To me, if you're working on those types of auditory memory and working memory skills in a way that also embeds these things that we know work, it's a little less risky because you're like, well, I'm not quite sure if this thing works over here, but I'm, I'm going to pull it in in a way that is also covering these things that we know work. Um, and so that's the way that I see it as of now. 
Having said that, um, there are a lot of things in the field right now where it, it's like the people who are really hardcore on the like you need tons and tons of peer reviewed evidence and a million meta analyses to, you know, even be able to validate using it in treatment. Well, that's a little bit that's not exactly practical because it does take so long for those types of studies to be published. On the other end, um, you also don't want to be doing something that doesn't have a lot of evidence behind it. We want to keep in mind that even though some of these things that don't have a ton of peer-reviewed studies behind them with with big control groups, um, there might be some case study evidence for them. And case study evidence, while it's not as strong as something like a meta-analysis or a study with a control group, it's still evidence. So it's not like we want to completely throw it out. These types of things give us some insight for some of those particular cases where maybe we're not quite sure what to do because there isn't a lot of research on it. So it's not like we should completely throw it out. So I'm still open to a lot of those things, again, like you know the, the whole auditory processing debate. I'm still open to what they have to say. And I'm always checking to see, all right, what what's the up-to-date research on it? While at the same time, I'm not going to fully jump on that and, you know, say, you know, add it to the framework in here yet, because I want to make sure that you're spending your time on things that that I know work. So with that all being said, um, not a lot of evidence. Don't feel like you have to include a working memory goal. If you want, if you think that your students might struggle with that, I would err on the side of doing the following directions goal, but make sure that you're embedding vocabulary into it. Um, and again, there are some great discussions here where, um, you know, we know that things like phonological awareness um, are an, an ability to tie the, the letter sound correspondence with those phonological representations. We know that those things can have an impact on spelling. There's a discussion in here about phonological awareness and phonological memory and do I need a goal? So I'd encourage you to check out those posts, but, but this is where, um, that's how you can kind of navigate that at the moment. a good place to wrap up. Obviously, there are some other questions I answered at the end of this Q&A, but I wanted to keep it focused for this episode. Again, if you are interested in learning more about Language Therapy Advanced Foundations, if you're an SLP and you want a better system for language therapy so that you can give your students the vocabulary and language skills that they need to thrive in school, then definitely check out the Language Therapy Advanced Foundations enrollment page. Just go to drkarenspeech.com backslash language therapy. Again, that's drkarenspeech.com backslash language therapy. So for now, we will wrap up. If you found this episode helpful, feel free to share it with your friends and colleagues or leave us a review on Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts. So now we'll wrap up and I will see you in the next episode. Thank you so much for listening.
Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, improve students' performance on state assessments without just teaching to the test? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com backslash BE to learn how IXL's research-based teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all these goals. That's IXL.com backslash BE. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into the master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out My Flex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flex time without the common challenges. Its intuitive design makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com backslash BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com backslash BE.